Hey everyone, I'm a little bit late this week, but uh, I figured I needed to hop in and do an episode at least one more time before the end of the month. Uh, I told you guys, I think before, that I was going to do a book club at the end of the month again, and I've decided what I'm going to do. We're going to do 1984. Um, It's one of those books that was in the curriculum for senior level English uh, in school, It's a book that I read several times before I ever started teaching, and then every single year while I was teaching. So I've got a whole bunch of notes and uh, lecture material over 1984 that that might help out um, those of you who are students um, and might need a little bit of a... Maybe you're lazy and maybe you didn't read the book or maybe you did read the book and you didn't get it all or maybe you have one of those teachers that doesn't really explain anything or just never makes you read these books. But either way, it will help you. This is a book that everyone is supposed to read uh, when they're young and... There's a reason for that. There are a lot of dystopian books that you read in school. 1984 is just one of them. Um, We already did an episode over Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies is another one. And Fahrenheit 451 is also another one. Brave New World. I don't see that one as much in high school level classes. uh, But it's also one that a lot of people read in school. And in all of these, especially the British dystopian novels, the I love them all, and they're extremely important for uh, the education of a young man or young woman, especially young men. But uh, there's there's something that I I've never really liked about the end of them, and it's got me thinking about that a lot uh, since we're going to do this um, book study at the end of the month. So before we get to it, I wanted to talk about what I don't like about 1984, and I would throw Brave New World in there too, is that the end of them are very... You're left with this very hopeless feeling at the end of these novels. And Lord of the Flies is the same way. At the end, it's not a happy ending. So this is a spoiler alert. None of these books have a happy ending. And I'm not saying that that is the problem because books, especially for kind of older aged high school students, you shouldn't just be reading um, happy ending smiley sunshine stories. That's not the point of education. So that's not really my gripe with them. But uh the gripe is that the a lot of people take away from these books that there's there's no hope because whatever you're up against, the dystopian government or the dystopian culture that the main character is up against always ends up being too large for them to overcome. And by the end of the novel in both 1984 and Brave New World, that is kind of the final 
thoughts of both of the protagonists is that the culture, the government, the world, this dystopian world that they live in, is there's nothing they can do to fight against it, so they might as well give up. And I don't like that mindset. And that's not really what the authors of 1984 and Brave New World were saying. They weren't saying there's no hope and you can't do anything about it. They were saying if you don't act, if you don't try to affect change on the world now, someday you will end up in a world that is hopeless and terrible. A lot of people, though, especially a lot of young uh, 21st century uh, modern world readers, they actually do end up taking this this hopeless message away from it at the end, unless it's very well explained to them. Um, and I don't know exactly why that is. There is, well, I, I have several thoughts um, as to what's causing it, but one thing I have definitely noticed with millennials and with Gen Z is there's a lot of apathy and hopelessness in both of these generations. And a lot of, uh, if you ask most people under the age of 30, if they think the future is going to be better and brighter or darker and worse, almost all of them think that the future is going to be horrible, whether it is like because of climate change or because of nuclear war or um, a thousand other things. Most, just stuff as simple as the economy, most young people don't have a view of the future being bright and uh, great, at least not in the short term. And you kind of see this in, like, uh, we had the midterms last week in America, and they didn't go the way that people on the right side thought they would, and people on the left side, for that matter. Everybody predicted a huge red wave because historically that's what always happens in the midterm elections after the first couple years of a president's uh, run. The House and the Senate usually flip the other way in opposition. That's what everybody expected, and everybody expected it to be even worse for Biden because inflation is higher than a woodpecker's hole and um, everything's expensive and the economy is not, it's not doing terrible, but it's not doing great. Um, people thought that there was going to be this red wave, and that did not happen. Now, a lot of people on the right, and I think there is definitely some credence to this, uh, think that there's a lot of cheating involved, especially in urban areas that are heavily uh, Democrat and run everything, and I think that's completely fair. I think they have every right to believe that people would cheat and would have the uh, ability to cheat and get away with it, but um, that might not be all of it, is what I'm saying. Uh because we've gotten to this place where half the country, especially people under 30, and this is kind of where I'm going with this, Gen Z voted overwhelmingly 
majority Democrat. And that makes sense because for the past 20 years at least, I would say longer than that, but at least for the past 20 years, every part of our culture, our popular culture, our movies, our television, um, everything has leaned very heavily left and that is all that most of kids here growing up is the left side of the spectrum's view and take and it it makes sense that if that's what they've been inundated with 24/7 you know 365 since they were little kids watching you know politically correct kids shows back in the early 2000s of course they're going to buy into the, you know, oh, everybody who's a Republican is just, you're just racist and homophobic and you're a scumbag because you aren't on my political side. Um, and I'm not, I'm not shitting you guys. That's what a lot of people on the other side think. It's very rare for the two political sides to be able to sit down and have a discussion anymore. And you see this on the national level and a state level. Really the only people who you can sit down and have a conversation with of a different political, you know, stripe than you are either somebody you've known your whole life, maybe they're old friends of yours, or maybe you're both not all that into politics and you've been friends, or maybe it's your family. Um and your family's very close knit. If your family's very close knit um, you can usually still have a discussion. Outside of that, and then on the on the national scale, we've gotten to the point where we can't really have a discussion anymore. Um, we're to the point where it's just the two sides are so different and so opposed in what they want that it's becoming clear that there's not going to be any middle ground that we can find. And why has that happened? Why has the younger generation gone so hard on all the liberal stuff? Um, why are they voting for leftism? Why are they leftist? Um, how'd that happen? Well, also for the past 20 years, going back to all that pop culture stuff, even people who were raised by kind of, let's say, traditionally either like Republican parents or parents who were kind of apolitical, What's happened over the past at least 10 years, probably 20 years? The first thing these parents give their kid to shut them up is an iPad or an iPhone and the internet. And that's where all of this kind of stems from. You've had 20 years of the internet raising all the kids. And uh, that's not great. It's 20 years that are gone, it's 20 years that we're not getting back. You can't make up a 70% 70, 70 gap. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to pull out of the nosedive. Um, there's not, not on a national level. We're heading, like I said, we're heading towards something, as uh, Uncle Ellis says in No Country for Old Men, you can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. So where's that leave us? Um, over the years, I've written my own dystopian books, and a lot of my thoughts on all of that 
came out in my own writing, but in a fictional way. It's not spelled out really like, this is what I think as an American, but I thought it might be fun to talk about that tonight. The American take versus these old kind of, the 1984, the Brave New World, the Lord of the Flies, that were fundamentally British takes on dystopia and British takes on dystopia towards the very end of the very successful British Empire. Um, Americans have a different mindset, I think. And you see this a little bit in Fahrenheit 451, and maybe I'll talk about that someday. But uh, we as Americans are also kind of looking at what most people would agree is kind of the end of an American empire as we have known it since, let's say, the early 1900s, with America being the largest superpower and kind of bigger and stronger and more influential than everyone else. That's going away. That's going away whether we like it or not, and I think everybody can kind of see that. And so we're kind of in the same position that these British guys, these British authors were back then, and I feel like, or I hope that Americans can find a little bit different mindset at the end. And instead of having a kind of defeated, hopeless, kind of black-pilled look at the future, I'm hoping that we can kind of pull out of that and not just want to crawl off in a hole and die. Because I hate that defeatist mindset. And I think that we should banish it to the depths of hell. And this is why. When I was young, like young kids are supposed to do, I read all the romantic stories. Stories about knights and cowboys, about the chivalric code, the code of the West, which are basically the same thing. Um, and they're both rooted in Christian moral ideas of how a man should be. And that is, a man should be brave and selfless and truthful and heroic. And underline that word, heroic. Now then when I got older, I got much more into realism and left romanticism behind me. I read Machiavelli. I read uh, the Bible, the Old Testament. I studied history and politics and war, and kind of my college years, I focused on history. That's what my degree is in. And through reading a whole bunch of history and politics, I came to this conclusion that all of it is so horrifying. Um, it's awful, awful, terrible. Like the darkness of mankind throughout history is a lot of bad things happened. And the world, it's true was, and this goes to the Bible side, was this fallen, sinful, cursed world. And even the best men, even the heroes, were not the romantic ideal of my childhood. And many people, too many people, get stuck right here. Their romantic notions of morality and justice are beaten down by the truth of human nature and the world, and they are left in this empty, hopeless state 
where because the romantic ideal is untrue, then that must mean that there is no, there's no hope to struggle for these things like virtue and justice and courage, because after all, even if you do your best, you won't live up to them. And this is kind of a pessimistic worldview. And it took me many years to kind of get to the place where I moved beyond that myself. And it's a bad place. And a lot of millennials find themselves on this road. A lot of Gen Z finds themselves on this road. And I talked about this earlier. And I said I had, you know, things I thought were causing it. And these are those things. This road that I'm talking about leads to atheism. It leads to apathy. It leads to pessimism and nihilism. And you can see this, again, in a lot of millennials and Gen Z. And I think we need to do everything we can to push back against this. Because I know so many people who've fallen into this, into this trap themselves. And I would have been one of them if not for my upbringing. If I hadn't grown up with the mom and the dad that I did, um, in the community that I did, in the, in the church that I did, well, I would probably be like a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Z, raised on the internet, um, smart enough to see that things are really wrong and that history is kind of this sad, tragic thing, but so lost into this worldview of atheism and neo-Marxism that you're just kind of engulfed by it. And there's no romanticism left in you. And that's the wrong place to end up. So what is the right place? Well, if you, if you see the world for what it is, if you understand the way things work with history and politics, if you get that most people are just too gullible and too stupid not to be taken advantage of by the rich and the powerful, if you get to the point that you can see you can see the guy behind the curtain running the giant Wizard of Oz thing, but it seems like most people can't see that. And even worse, a lot of people are smart enough to see it, but then they get 75% of the way there and they turn to something like Marxism or progressivism as the answer to the problem. It's a very frustrating place to get. Well, what else is there? Like, what is the right answer if that's the wrong answer? I would say that you need to, first of all, to fight against the, the atheism thing, um, God is the answer to that. Jesus is the answer to that on a on a spiritual level. Because if that's getting 100% of the way there, in my view. Because a lot of people who get 75% of the way there, and then they're like, what can we do to fix this? Their answer is always, you know, government. And that's a very bad answer. Historically, it just shows, like, the government doesn't have a good track record over the last hundred years of of fixing the 
the fundamental human problem of sinful nature. So on a spiritual level, uh, you need to find God, because uh, that's the only answer that is going to be big enough to, to keep you from falling into this apathetic, sad, depressed state. But a lot of people kind of try to separate their religious beliefs out from and away from their the rest of their beliefs. They like to like cordon off their religious beliefs in a neat little place over here to the side and then not really bring them up and not really talk about them in society. And that's because we live in a very secular time, in a very secular world, where it's just not very polite to talk about religion at all. And uh, I think the modern, most modern Protestant churches in America and the West have kind of done everything they can to facilitate this, honestly, over the past few generations. Um, they've not pushed back against that. They've kind of allowed all of their members and their congregations, and they've kind of pushed, a lot of pastors have pushed this themselves from the pulpit of separating yourself, your religious beliefs from the world, from your political beliefs, from your societal beliefs, from your job, from, from everything. And that's not the right thing to do. Um, it's just not. And when you kind of realize that, and you realize that not only are you supposed to have these religious beliefs and do your best to live up to your Christian morality, you can't just leave that all at your front door every day when you leave your house. You can't stop being a Christian every morning when you walk out to your car and go drive to work or go drive to the voting booth. You can't do that. It won't work. Because if you do that, you fall right back into that. Your beliefs just kind of get stripped away until you're going through the motions. You're going to church on Sunday because that's just something you do, but you don't really like when the when the pastor brings up any kind of hardline religious ideas that, that conflict with the modern pop culture. We don't, we don't really want to talk about abortion or, or gay marriage or any of that because it makes us feel icky. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what you should do because it's going to water down your religion until your religion just kind of fades away. Oh, my little girl is trying to go to sleep and not having any of it. Time out for a second. All right, I'm back. And she's she stopped crying, so we're good to go now. Um, so that's the first thing, I think. I think you need to, if you... First of all, you should be trying to find God. Second of all, don't leave God at your home. Don't try to leave God behind you. That is the first thing. Uh, that's Let's say that's the religious aspect of this. Now, the second thing is I think that as Americans, we need to learn something from these great British dystopian novelists. We need to learn a lesson. 
And that lesson is not to give up on your your culture, your mindset, not to embrace that hopelessness um, and not to throw away your romantic ideals. For example, British ideas on... The British are where we get our ideas of chivalry. Um, the One of the greatest kind of romantic stories of all time is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's one of the oldest stories from English literature. Nobody even knows who wrote the story. That's how old it is. And you have Sir Gawain, who's King Arthur's greatest and most loyal knight, the one with the, you know, he's the biggest and baddest guy. He and he embodies chivalry the most of all of King Arthur's knights. And he goes on this epic quest, and the whole time he tries to uphold his chivalric code. And he does so almost the entire time. Uh, he even re- rejects the advances of a beautiful woman who tries to dis- seduce him, but he makes one mistake. He tells one small lie. And he views this as a horrible, crushing thing that destroys his chivalry. Point being this, even the greatest example of chivalry from the ancient tales didn't live up to the code. But he tried. And I think that's the point, and I think that's something we can learn, is we need to try to uphold these romantic ideals of what a man is supposed to be virtuous and brave and uh, righteous and telling the truth and, and fighting for the innocent. And we don't need to give up on it just because uh, the world is this horrible place and chivalry doesn't always live up to itself and men don't always live up to the chivalric code. You're never going to. But uh, the answer is not to kind of cry and say, boo-hoo, this is all hopeless. We can't, uh, we can't ever achieve what we want, so we, our culture is dying, and so this is just where we are. Screw that. Uh, we need, as Americans, we need to find a little grit down there in our guts We need to find a little hope down there in our hearts, and we need to stop this defeated mindset and this clawing at our face before the real fight has even started. And that's that fight is coming. Make no mistake. Uh, We are not like other cultures and other peoples from history. Every culture, every people is a little different, and they have different. Uh, attributes and different good things about them, different bad things about them. But Americans have a history. We have a culture. We are not descended from meek, compliant peasants. That's not who we are. Our ancestors are conquerors. They came to the wildest place on earth and they hacked out settlements on hostile coastlines. In the forest, there were hostile savages that would rape and torture and murder men and women and children alike. And they persevered and they conquered the continent. For a century, 
Our ancestors moved into some of the most inhospitable places on the face of the earth and turned them into homes. The place I live was never tamed until the 1880s. Not even the Apaches or Comanches really made a home of it. They lived like nomads and they moved through the area, uh, but they never really hacked out homesteads or worked the land. Out on the corner of my my house, where my house is built, there's this white rock foundation that somebody, early, early settler, they set up this 8 foot by 10 foot rock foundation. And they would have had to do that somewhere in the mid-1800s. They set up an 8 foot by 10 foot shelter along a tiny creek in the middle of this sea of grass that was the Great Plains. Who knows how close the nearest actual settlement was when they did that. Um, And out here on this sea of grass where they did that, the last Comanches and Kiowas were still prowling around like sharks. My own great-grandfather was born right before the turn of the century, only 20 or 30 years after that and moved to this county when he was still pretty young. Stop acting like you aren't made of sterner stuff, because you are. If you call yourself an American, don't listen to the people who say you have no culture. You do have a culture. It is a culture of conquerors and frontiersmen and settlers, some of the greatest soldiers, fighters, and brawlers that ever lived. Don't get me wrong, I'm not over here saying I'm some kind of badass, you know, Rambo, but I'm not some cowering peasant like most of the people throughout human history. We as Americans, we are not like the kulaks in Bolshevik Russia. We are not the peasants in China who died in droves during Mao's Great Leap Forward. We are not the Jews in Europe during World War II. We're none of that. We aren't modern Canadians or Australians or Europeans either, for that matter. We're Americans. Our ancestors were people like Jim Bridger and Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, George Washington and Robert E. Lee, Wyatt Earp, Blackjack Pershing, Colonel McKenzie. We defeated, adopted, and adapted the fighting spirit of people like the Comanche and the Apache and the Sioux. Our ancestors marched over these lands, carrying Christian banners. We're more deeply rooted in the Christian religion than all of modern Europe at this point. We carry Bibles and guns, and we believe in both of them. And if you've studied any history, you should know that people who have religious beliefs are hard to conquer. Afghanistan, anyone? Iraq? Why do you think we didn't conquer and change them after trying for over 20 years? So, stop acting like some godless, hopeless peasant. You don't have to embrace that. You can be an American. You can be a hard son of a bitch if you want to. You have it in you. Your ancestor's blood is still running through your veins. 
So, before we get to the end of the month and do this book study, this dystopian novel, I want to be very straightforward about the end of that. Do not accept the black pill of dystopia and think that you can't actually stand up and fight for truth and goodness, because you can. You can do that if you show tyranny your teeth and stop being a whiny pussy about it. Um, so, that's all I've got for you tonight. That's going to be our episode for the week, kind of a short one. I'll be back here with you later in the month for 1984. And until that time, thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. Peace out.